All right, let's turn to Philippians chapter 3 and we'll get into this. So, uh, Justin uh, texted me this morning, just while I was out there. And of course, he has to say, I'm praying for you. That's what pastors say when you're in this situation. So, he said that. And then I got a text that said, make sure you take a picture of Buddy while he's preaching. And I was like, okay, well, that's weird. So, I took a selfie while I was there in the aisle. And the flash went off and everybody around me looked at me. And so, I said, here's your, I, I took a, a playbook out of Dan's, uh, a move out of Dan's playbook there. And uh, put a nice quote on it and sent it to him. But, <laughs> all right, so it's the first of the year, and uh, I wanted to kind of talk about what I called this sermon, if you need a name for it, Andrew, uh, is hashtag goals, all right? Because, uh, you know, at the first of the year, we all decide we're going to do different things. We're going to make all these uh, commitments to stop eating sweets like, or maybe run 3.1 miles, uh, as I did the other day. And uh, <laughs> that's an inside joke only a few of you get. And the person that I wanted to get is not in the room, so I'll have to say it again later. But uh, we, all, we make all these decisions at the first of the year, don't we? And they're all good. You know, it's fine to make those. I have a, a standing New Year's resolution not to make any New Year's resolutions. And so I've been keeping that one pretty good for about 25 years now, so I'm just going to keep rolling with that, you know. Uh, and so, but the, the thing is, is this. There's a big difference between making a change in your life in the sense to benefit yourself in some way and there's a, but there's a difference in doing that and saying, I'm going to change who I am. And one of the fundamental things about the gospel is, is that Jesus is in the business and ha- is in the business of making us who we are because of what he's done. Operating from that is what's key. I know for years in my Christian life, it was one commitment after the next commitment after the next commitment to be a different kind of a person. Uh, I was an altar athlete, that's what we called them, you know. I mean, at the end of the sermon, I was running to the altar to do whatever needed to be done, you know. I mean, if it was drinking Kool-Aid, I would have given up drinking Kool-Aid for the week or whatever the case may be. I was doing whatever I needed to do in order to try to make myself something that I felt like I was not. Um, and years, as years and years of that went on through college and all that, as I began to come in, the Lord began to open my eyes more to what was his intentions towards me by grace. It was where, it's, you, it's funny how you struggle to put those things down, you know. And the reason why we struggle to put them down is because we're obsessed with being in control of our own lives. We're absolutely obsessed with it. Uh, it may look very clean and good and pretty, so to speak. You know, a lot of times when we think about control, we think of, you know, like Adolf Hitler or Mussolini or something like that. But a lot of times it's not that insidious looking, though it is insidious. A lot of the times it's very covert. It's very under the surface. It's like, you know, very superficial. You know, we just want to be, and I, I can name a thousand things, and I hesitate to start naming stuff because then we're like, oh, I didn't make the list. You know what I mean? But we know where it's at. Uh, where we're trying to control in life. Anywhere from the way that we look all the way down to our closest relationships, we tend to have this propensity to want to control it and make it a goal to either change ourselves or change others. And in Philippians chapter 3, Paul kind of deals with this whole idea of having goals in life. And there's nothing wrong with it as long as it flows out of the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is not you achieving necessarily anything. It's you receiving and living from that reception, if I can put it that way. So I'm going to read a bunch of verses. Then we're going to go back and break them down in Philippians chapter number 3. I am reading the New King James Version. If you want to go to the top of your phone and select and scroll down to that one that you probably don't use anymore, click on that one. 
And yes, she's like, yes, I never use that one anymore. <laughs> I almost went with the hipster Bible this morning and preached from the ESV, but I didn't want to throw you off too bad, you know. So uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse number 1, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, and only a pastor can say finally, brethren, and then write two more chapters. You know, that's his conclusions, two more chapters. So he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. And I love verse number 2, and this is why. Because in verse number 2, he's not literally telling you to beware of German shepherds, you know, beware of dogs. That's not what he's talking about there. Uh, Paul gets kind of rough in that verse, and he's actually talking about these religious Judaizers in this verse. And he calls them dogs. It's pretty hardcore, you know. Paul's my man, hashtag my brother. And uh, he says, uh, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers. Well, that's pretty tough. And he says, beware of the mutilation. We won't get into that one. You just have to use your imagination on that one, all right? Verse number three says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit. And notice what he says here. Rejoice in Christ and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Now, Paul says, listen, there's a lot of people that have confidence in their outward circumstances, what they can provide for themselves or what has been handed to them in life. They have a lot, of, a lot of confidence in that. And Paul gets into this long list of things that at one time he had a lot of confidence in. And he gives you like a laundry list. Basically, I heard one guy say it's like a flesh contest. If he wants to say, you want to trust in your flesh, here's the flesh I trust in. Let's see if it's as good as mine was anyway. He says in verse number five, he says, I was circumcised the eighth day. Now that was part of the law. Paul really had nothing to do with that, did he? I mean, at eight days you're old, he wasn't like, all right, guys, let's get this over with, you know. Uh, somebody else had that done for I don't know why I'm elaborating on this. It says, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee, which would be the strictest of them. He says, concerning zeal, he was so excited about the law that he persecuted the church concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Which means this, the other Pharisees would have looked at Paul and said, he's got this down. You know, he's got things under control. But it's interesting how Paul equates all of this behavior to flesh, isn't it? You know, because he says down here in verse number 7, he says, But the things which were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. Indeed, also I count all things for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. Your, your Bible might say dung. He says that I might gain Christ. And in verse number 9 is the key of everything that he's driving at right now. He says to be found in him not having my own righteousness. And that is the key for, with self-help. Self-help and all this idea of making something that we're not is really us establishing our own righteousness. And Paul says, listen, I tried to establish my own righteousness for years. And I established it through my position, through my birthright, where I was. It's like, listen, we run into this all the time socially. Have you ever met somebody that lives in the nice part of town? You know what I mean? They don't, they don't live in the neighborhood with cars on blocks, you know what I mean, or burning 55-gallon drum of trash in their front yard like the neighborhood I live in, things like that. They live on the side where everything's fancy, you know. Everything's like a monogrammed initial on everything or something like that, all right? <laughs> You know, something like that. They live in that side of town. And you ever notice that, you know, people are proud of that kind of thing? They're proud of it, aren't they? They've established for themselves some sort of righteousness that they build an identity from, haven't they? Now, if you come in my house, we're going to have a good time warming our hands over a 55-gallon drum of burning trash in the backyard. It'll be great. I'm just kidding. I don't know that's what Rob does at his house. But, uh, Andrew, you burn trash at your house too? Okay. 
But a lot of times in our life, we get proud about things that really Paul was proud of. Some of the stuff he had nothing to do with. It was just something that was kind of given to him. And I hope I'm making sense about this. It makes perfect sense in my head. I may have to peel back my brain ahead and let you look in there because it makes total sense to me. Really, at the end of the day, and this is my thought pattern for this, there are very real consequences for the things that we choose to trust, good and bad, you know. We think about consequences like if I murder somebody, I go to jail. You know, we think of that as consequences. We think to ourselves that consequences are the fallout from those, those big, huge sin choices that we make. That's what we think, don't we? We think to ourselves like, you know, hey, if I go out and rob a bank, I'm going to jail. You know, if, uh, if I don't treat my kids properly, some, the state's going to come and take them away, or whatever the case may be. But there are so many other consequences that we live with as a result of what we trust, good and bad. And that's what Paul is really pointing out here. He's pointing out here the goal of what we should be trusting is not making ourselves something, but trusting the one who has already made us something. And that's what he's really driving at down through these verses. So we need to see that the singular and most important essential goal for the Christian is not something that we seek to achieve, but it's something or someone that we receive. And it rhymes so it's biblical, all right? So you always keep that in mind. Paul really hones in in the first uh, verses 3 down through verse number 7 because he, what he does is he kind of brings to light for us his own personal crisis of faith. Because he says, there was a day when I trusted in these things and then suddenly all these things were taken away. Remember, Paul was on the road to Damascus, you know that. He has an encounter with Jesus and Jesus says, why are you resisting me so much? And uh, you know the whole story. I'm not going to go back into it. But in that moment, when Paul came into contact with Jesus Christ, things began to change for him. What he did have as his identity was suddenly taken away. Matter of fact, as we read down through these verses, and we'll get to them here in a minute, he's going to talk about how he suffered loss. And when we do begin to give up our identity and the things that give us a sense of control, there is a sense of loss in our lives. There's that sense in which uh, we're giving something away that brought us great comfort. You know, the, the flesh, and let me just say this, the flesh is not your sin nature. That's, I don't want to get too deep into that, but the flesh is not your sin nature. The flesh is a, let me, I want to read the definition I wrote down because I want to make sure I get it clear. The flesh is a network and a construct of behaviors that we trust outside of Christ to meet our needs. It is these, or these things and this way of thinking and these behaviors that we place around us in order to construct a sense of security that we think we want from these things that's outside of Jesus Christ. Let's just take one of the big, huge ones. Let's just grab one of the big things that everybody was like, oh, when it happens. Let's just say adultery. Let's take adultery. Or we take things like murder, and we say to ourselves, well, that was the problem. No, that was the fruit of the problem. The actual problem is something much deeper inside of us to where we're we're reaching out for a sense of control. We need to remember that before we drop the hammer on some people when we look at their behaviors. The only difference between some people's behaviors and our behaviors, number one is we didn't get caught and they did. And number two, ours are just a little bit more socially acceptable than other people's ours at times. And that's it. When you boil it all down, the consequences may be different, but the very root of why they occur is pretty much the same. Control, trying to bring ourselves a sense of comfort, give ourselves some sort of identity, and meeting some sort of need that we have, that we feel like has to be met by ourselves. Now, 
Paul goes down through these, these verses, and he, this kind of caught my, my, my eye. In verse number three, you're going to, in verse number three and four, you're going to see the word confidence used quite often. He goes, if anybody would have confidence in the flesh, I would have more. Verse number thir- uh, four, though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks that he might have confidence in the flesh, I have so much more. You see, he's, he, fo- he focuses in on this idea of confidence. When we have confidence in something, it's something that we trust. It's something that we put all our weight down on to hold us up in life in some way. We've had, we put our confidence in a lot of people, and we don't even realize it, do we? I mean, I, but here's what we've got to remember. Even when people let us down, we've been that one that let somebody else down too. When we put all our confidence in a person, when they let us down, there's more than just hurt there. Sometimes there's a loss in identity. Sometimes there's a, a complete loss in confidence and humanity altogether, depending on what it is. And Paul says, listen, I had so much confidence in my flesh, so much confidence in the fact that I was a Hebrew, that, I, that he mentioned that he had been circumcised eight days after he was born. Can you imagine a grown man? He's got his confidence in this. It seems silly when you think about it, doesn't it? But it's silly when we really stop and say, what is it? that I have got a death grip on that seems good, but I'm finding all my identity and all my self-worth and all my, all my value in that thing. I know for one of the things that it was for me personally was something very good, so to speak. It was something that uh, people also considered admirable. It was being a pastor. I had a lot of my identity and weight put down on that, and I didn't even realize it. And you don't realize it until you suffer that loss. And I'm not telling you this story so you'll come up to me and pat me on the back and say, I'm so sorry for you. I'm not looking for sympathy. I'm just saying that's the way that it is. I would rather have it that way than keep going on in the delusion that this thing, this activity, this behavior has granted me some sort of self-worth and identity. Because you know what? The longer you go on in it, the harder the crash comes when it's taken away, isn't it? And so Paul, he's, he's, he's finding all his identity and his worth and these things that, uh, to be quite honest with you, just seem ridiculous. We all have coping habits and strategies of various stripes. The only way we lose confidence in something is when our dependence on that thing is taken away. Sometimes that just happens naturally. Sometimes God intervenes. We lose confidence in something or someone when that trust in it fails. The best thing that could have ever happen to Paul is his confidence failed in the things that he was trusting. It was the best thing that could have ever happen to him. He would not be the person in Philippians chapter 3 that he was in the book of Acts if that wasn't the case. There's a, a story that, not a story, a, a parable that Jesus gives. And I, I didn't write down the a biblical address. I'm sure you have it memorized, so it's okay. But he tells the story. Wait, I don't want to get to that story yet. I'm telling you the wrong illustration. Let me back up. Sorry. <clears throat> I thought about this while I was going through this again. When I was younger, I used to play football. I know that's hard to believe, but I did. And um, my older cousin played football as well. I, play, I played uh, right guard, and I wanted to move back into uh, being a linebacker. So after that first year ended, second year started up, I wanted to be a linebacker. And uh, so first practice out, the coach is, all right, we'll give you a, a chance for this. And I can't remember what the drill's called, but it's where a couple of guys line up. It's like a little scrimmage. The running back comes through, and they have the two dummies on the side. You've got to run through the dummy. The linebacker comes up and takes out the running back. All right, so that whole summer, I had practice with my cousin. He was like two or three years older than me, and we would get full pads, and he would just murder me in the backyard. Just 
absolutely destroy me. I'm, that's what's wrong with me. I've been hitting the head so many times. And so we practiced all summer. By the end of the summer, I got pretty good at tackling him. He was a good, you know, six, eight inches taller than me, if not more. He weighed more than me. And I was like, well, I'm getting this. And I was real confident. So when he called me up for the linebacker scrimmage, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is going to happen right here, you know. And so this kid lines up on the other side of me. The ball snaps, and he comes over the line. And when he hit me, he ran over me like Clemson, uh, Clemson ran over Alabama. I mean, he put me down. It was a public shaming. Sorry. I mean, that's just what happened. It's not my fault they lost, guys. I mean, yes, that's right. Even worse. <laughs> I wrote that with one joke for the one person in this room, and he knows who he is. Yeah, that's right. It was you. That's right. <laughs> You're welcome. But he did. When, man, when he, he hit me, I've never been, my cousin hit me hard. i had never been tackled so hard in my life. He tackled me so hard, I had that look, he had that look in his eye when he came over the line. Like, he wanted to do more than just knock me down. He wanted to, like, end my life. I could see it in his eyes, you know. So much so that it freaked me out. You know, he, like, got in my head before he even got there. And I went, to, I went to grab his head and push it down to grab it. When I did, my hand got caught between the face mask. Rule of thumb with tackling, you never put your hand on the helmet, okay? Just don't do that. He laid me out. And I was laying there on my back, literally. I couldn't hardly see straight. And I got up, you know, I'd twist my helmet back around, and i walk around to get back in the line. And when I did, there was this kid in the back of the line, and I heard him lean over to his friend and say, that kid needs to learn how to tackle. Now, he was right, but you know what it did to me in my young mind? It destroyed me. One sentence took away all my confidence. I only played two more weeks, and I quit playing football. I never played since. Now, you can feel sorry for me about that. I'm kidding. My point here is this. When our confidence is taken away, we look for different things to replace it at times. I looked for other things, and, you know, I found it in other sports activities that I was good at at the time. My point here is this. There are times when life just runs you down, and that thing or that person or that activity or that habit that we were trusting in is just knocked into the dirt. And we stand up and we straighten up our helmets and we realize real quick that we weren't quite as tough as we thought we were, you know. Paul realized that on the road to Damascus. You know what's so great when God intervenes in our lives? God didn't, you know what Jesus, when Jesus interacted with Paul, it wasn't malicious, was it? The world interacts with us in a malicious way, you know. Jesus comes down to that road and he stops Paul and he says, Paul, why are you doing this? You know, why? Why is it going there, Saul, excuse me? Why is, it, why is it going this way? And that simple interaction stripped away from Paul all, all confidence he had in all the things that gave him all the identity that he had up to that moment. So what does Paul say? He said, listen, if you think you have confidence in your resume, I had ultimate confidence in mine. In verses number four, as he, he goes down through here, Really what he's pointing out here is this, is the thing that is more dangerous in our Christian life sometimes than failure is actually success. That's where some real danger can be. Because we locate a pattern of habits or a pattern of behaviors or we learn how to navigate through and it works all of a sudden. You know, all of a sudden we have that thing that we wanted. Man, that worked. I'm going to do that over and over and over again to get it again. You know what I mean? 
Or suddenly, I know if I, just, if I just act like this kind of person, I will get these kind of things, you know. And we learn how to work that system. It's called manipulation, and we learn how to do it, don't we? And we are better at it or just as good at it as we think the other person is. And we don't even realize it. And so Paul says, listen, I knew how to get what I wanted. I knew how to succeed in life. But what does he say in Galatians 6, 14? He says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's two different people, isn't it? That's not Saul on the road to Damascus. That's Paul. Someone has said our greatest weakness is depending on what we think our greatest strengths are. I remember when uh, I was, Ben, you'll remember this story, I think. I think it may have been before, I think it was ninth or tenth grade. I don't know if you remember, maybe you do. I was in somehow in the eighth grade. You know, I had them in ninth grade. So somehow in eighth grade, some kids from Theodore High School came to Theodore Middle School. That's what it was called at the time. And uh, convinced me to sign up for ROTC, all right? I don't know how they taught me into it, but I was, I'm not ROTC material. I'm not military material. That's not me anywhere near that. All I saw was rifles that I got to shoot. That's all I saw, all right? So I signed up for that. And, but then I, they didn't tell me about the push-ups and all the drilling and that's, that, those clothes they give you to wear. They didn't tell me about that part either. So anyways, I was in ROTC. Uh, what we would do is we would just finish all our shooting practice and go underneath the bleachers at Theodore High School and shoot all the pigeons out from underneath the bleachers. It was great. And uh, so one day we got through doing that, and there was a fence on the backside of the football field about six foot tall, and all my friends climbed the fence. Well, I got to the top of it. It's so funny how you remember these stories so well. I remember I was wearing a pair of blue jeans, van sneakers, a Pearl Jam T-shirt, and a flannel shirt. I remember what I was wearing when this happened. I got to the top of this fence, and they said, buddy, jump, and we will catch you. Let me tell you something about 13-year-old boys. They're all liars, all right? And they don't know how to do algebra very good. So anyways... I got to the top of this fence, and they kind of wanted me to do this stage dive thing. You know what I mean? So uh, I did it. I did it. I was all in, man. I jumped, flipped around backwards to my back, fell to the ground, and broke my shoulder, all right? My friend was convinced it was just out of socket and just wanted to snatch it back into place. Glad I talked him out of that one, all right? So uh, as I'm sitting there, I couldn't even put it in a sling or in a cast. I just had to wear a sling for all these weeks, which was terrible. So by the end of it, you know, I was doing these exercises with the little rubber band, you know, getting back on. And I felt like I was doing pretty good, you know. And I thought I was back to normal. The doctor has said, your arm's going to be a little bit weak. I'm like, well, it feels fine. He's like, it's going to be weak. I told him again, it felt fine. He said, whatever. And I left the doctor's office. I went home, and uh, I like to eat cereal because I'm American. And so I opened uh, the refrigerator, and there was a full gallon of milk in there. And I was like, I got this. So I gra- It was my right arm. So I grabbed it with the milk, full gallon of milk, pulled it off the top shelf. You ever remember those Looney Tune commercials where the coyote runs off the cliff? And then he realizes, wait a minute, there's no cliff, there's no ground under me anymore. And he falls. That's exactly what happened. I pulled it out, and I went, I can't hold this. And it just fell down. The, I guess the point of that story is this, is that oftentimes we think that we're a stronger than we really are when it comes to the things that we think we have control over. And Paul points out the fact that, listen, one of the, the things that we trust the most, the strengths, our successes are actually our greatest failures and our greatest weaknesses if we're not careful. But in verse number seven, notice what he says. He says, but the things that were gained to me, I've counted for a law, uh, excuse me, I can't see it from here, but what things were gained to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. 
Yet indeed also count all things for loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. Now, early in their chapter, he used the word confidence three times. Now he uses the word count three times. What he's basically, count, this word count is like a, uh, is an accounting term. It's a math term. He's saying, listen, I've added up the benefit of all the things that I used to trust, and I've added up the benefit of what Christ has done for me, and the conclusion I come to is, this all those other things are worthless and this is what I really need you see I'm not saying that everything about Christianity is just sheer math and logic I'm not saying that but I'm but I'm also not saying that sometimes it isn't sometimes you have to just take inventory spiritual inventory of what the benefit what it is to have life in Christ and what it is to have some sort of a fake life by the flesh and you just have to tally those things up and say which one do I really want What do I really want reflected? What kind of value do I really have in these things? And it's not, um, you know, it's, I'm not saying that that's going to change your life, but it will help you understand exactly why you're making the decisions that you make. When you pull down the inventory and you see where things are really at. The flesh is a valueless, empty attempt to gain life rather than experiencing the life that Jesus has already gained for you. Verse 9, he says, And be found in him having, uh, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness which is from God by faith. And he says, and we all verse, know, know verse number 10, right? He says, that I might know him. All this might, the fact of us knowing who Christ is, living from who Christ is, is us taking evaluation of what the flesh can give us versus who Je- what Jesus has already provided for us. You know, it reminds me of that story. You remember uh, Jesus told it. Um, it was the man that, uh, the, the pearl of great price. You remember that? Uh, obviously, I think we kind of know the, who the pearl of great price was in that illustration. Uh, Jesus tells a story about this guy that uh, he, he finds this one pearl of great price. And when he finds it, he goes and he sells everything that he owns to have this one pearl. And there's this other man that finds a, a, a treasure in a field. So when he finds this treasure in this big open field, he goes and sells everything that he has to buy this one field. Now, when you stop and you really think about that, think of especially the guy with the field, because it's obvious what's going on. People can see it. So he's got this one field. He's got this one piece of property. He's got his house on it. He's got a two-car garage for both donkeys. He's got all this stuff that he needs for in that day. You know what I mean? He sells all that stuff. And then he goes and buys this one field that has nothing on it. You know, most people around him would look at him and say, this guy's mad. There's something wrong with him. Why would he give up all that stuff to go have this open field that's not prepared in any way? doesn't even have a house on it, so to speak. It's just this big open field. Why would he even do that? Well, because he knows what's in the field. See, what looks like madness to the world and the flesh makes complete sense to you and I when we know what Christ has to offer us. It's the same thing with the pearl. One guy finds one pearl that is the most valuable pearl he's ever seen. So what does he do? He gets rid of everything and he gets this one. The question we have to ask ourselves is this. Did they really lose anything? They really didn't. Because now they have something that's worth more than what they had before. And see, this is what Paul's pointing out to us. He's saying, listen... All the stuff I gave up, there was a loss to it, but was it really a loss? At the end of the day, it wasn't because he gained Christ, and he he talks about that in these verses. 
I were, there was a, a ministry that I came into contact with when I lived in Utah. The, they're out of Inglewood, Colorado. It's called uh, Exchanged Life Ministries. And uh, one of their big focuses is this exchanged life. And their, their verses, that verse is, uh, in Isaiah that says, uh, those that trust in the Lord shall mount up with eagle's wings. And that's all I remember. But that's their verse. And they, they talk about how and the Christian life is not so much about us finding sacrifices to make. And let me just say, that's what religion calls for you to do. Religion says, give this up and give this up and give this up and give this up and give this up, and then God will, then God will, then God will. See, the gospel teaches us that God already has... And he is calling you to just simply exchange what you have for something better that he has. You see, religion is all about us doing something to get something from God, even when it sounds good. You know, for years, I even thought, just for example, I thought to myself, God was never, hardly ever going to answer any of my prayers because I just didn't meet the criteria often enough. You know, I didn't, I didn't seek, 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 and ask, 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 and knock, 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 enough. You know what I mean? And heaven forbid, I mean, the other things that I was struggling with in my life, there's no way God's going to answer my prayers. Until, really, until I realized one day that my prayers weren't for God, they're for me. That's what my prayers are for. My prayers are so that I understand what God really wants to do in my life, through me, and for everyone else around me. And I, when I exchange what I have for what he has, you know what I suddenly started seeing? When I started to pray, I started praying for what God wanted me to have and not what I wanted me to have. And so Paul talks about this idea of exchanging through here the flesh life for the Christ life. Let's finish up. I've I got I to shut this thing down here. All right, look at verse number 12. We'll read these. Oh, no, excuse me, verse number 11. Oh, no, look at verse 12. Let's just go there. He says, not that I have already obtained or I'm already perfect, but I press on that I may lay hold, and this is very interesting to me, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Do you see that? He's saying, listen, I want the exact same thing that Jesus has already gotten for me. That's what I want. Beforehand, he wanted his own resume. Now he says, I'll just take Jesus' resume. Whatever that is, I'll take that. Verse 13, he says, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And how many sermons have you heard on that verse right there, right? I mean, January 1st, that's the best. You know, I, I hate to break, I guess here's the pessimist coming out in me. It doesn't matter that when the clock ticked from January 3rd, or December 31st to January one suddenly your life did not become new. I don't know if you're aware of that or not, all right? The ball dropped, and you still had to pay your mortgage, all right? The confetti flew, and you still had marriage issues, right? You know, you, when at 12.02, and you drank the last bit of champagne, you still had to wake up and go to work the next day and deal with that boss. Maybe that's why you drank so much champagne. I don't know. See, but if you look at that verse, and in the English version, you know, verse chap and verse number 13, the end of that, there's a little comma. You see that? I'm not an English major, as some people in this room know from my extensive use of double negatives and my improper use of he, she, me, and I, all right? I do know enough about commas to know that you continue on with the thought, all right? So he continues on down in verse 14, he says, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God, where? In Christ Jesus. 
You know what Paul's goal was? Paul's goal wasn't to be not a Jew anymore. Paul's goal was not to be the best apostle among the 12 or the 13, depending on wherever your theological position is on that, all right? Paul's goal was not to be the greatest pastor in the world. Paul's goal wasn't to be the best evangelist in the world. Paul's goal wasn't even to sin less. Paul's goal was the prize that he sought in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, here's how all that works. When the, when the person of Jesus Christ is your goal, all those other things find their place. All those, it trickles down exactly the way God has intended it. When our goal is right, everything else is right. When we find our prize in the person of Jesus Christ, all those other things are going to be addressed as they go down. He presses towards the goal. Notice, notice what he says in verse number 15. We'll stop there, I promise. He says, therefore, all right, therefore, let us, <clears throat> as many as are mature, have this mind. And if any, and if, I got a mark through that, I can't read it. And if in anything else you think otherwise, God will reveal this even to you. In my Bible, I have that phrase, as many as are mature, have this mind. You know what a mature Christian is? A mature Christian is, is, that not, is not the person that reads two chapters a day to keep the devil away, all right? That's not necessarily a mature Christian. A mature Christian is not the one that, you know, go three to thrive. That's what we used to always say in my church services. You go to Sunday morning, you go to Sunday night. And then if you have to go to Wednesday night, you do that too. Then if you've got to go to Sunday school, it's really like 10 to thrive because then you've got to go to Thursday night soul winning. Then you've got to go to Saturday morning bus visitation. Then you've got Tuesday night prayer meeting. And uh, on the one night a week you get to yourself, you're a complete zombie because you can't even operate mentally or emotionally. The mature Christian is not the busy Christian. The mature Christian that is the one that has this mind, that my prize is found in Christ. That's the mature Christian. I remember when, um, when I did pastor, I had this mentality for a short period of time that busy people are happy people. I don't know why I thought that. I have no clue. I just thought if I kept everybody busy enough at church, everybody would be happy. You know what I mean? Like, yay. And that is a common philosophy. The goal in a lot of religious circles is not Christ's church. That's the goal. I have a friend of mine. I hope he's listening to this too. <laughs> he's a good friend of mine up in, uh, up in uh, Huntsville, and he pastors a church. And he's a good guy. He's real funny. He's, uh, he's super conservative. He calls me when he's tired of being super conservative. That's how this works, all right? I'm like his little release from being conservative. But he was on Facebook the other day, and he put something on there. He's like, God met with us. We had like 146 in our service. So me being the kind, gentle creature that I am, I texted him, and I said, hey, I saw your theologically incorrect Facebook post the other day. <laughs> and he says, what do you mean? I said, so God met with you. You got 146 people, so God met with you. I said, where was he at beforehand? And he, he came back, and he said, well, he wasn't at your church. I said, ouch. <laughs> that was a good comeback, though. You got to give him, pro gotta give him points. We talked about it a little more, and, you know, he understands what I was saying. But isn't it so interesting what we really feel like our goals are. And I told him this. I was like, why is that the goal? Why is that the goal? Why are 100 and something people the goal? Why, is all, why are all these different things that we do, why are they the goals when Jesus is the real goal? Let's have a word of prayer, right? And we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, thank you so much uh, for uh, using scripture to remind us of what the actual goal is in our life and uh, surrounding everything on that basis.
So we're thankful that uh, you have placed yourself in us. You lead us. You speak to us. Uh, you do not leave us alone. Uh, you re, uh, redirect us and refocus us on a regular basis, and you show us your love. You do it all in love, and we're thankful for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.